0: My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is recorded live in San Francisco and produced in collaboration with Dave Clark at Studio Pod Media. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morenzi with additional editing and music presented by Notolab. This episode of Technically Speaking is sponsored by Automatic, the people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack. WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Automatic's 1,400 people hail from 79 countries and speak 99 languages. Their open source software products democratize publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it and anyone with a product can sell it, regardless of income, gender, politics, language, or country. More than 1 billion people use Automatic products every month. Automatic also contributes directly to WordPress, the open source project that powers over 40% of websites on the internet. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit Automatic.com to check out the latest job listings today. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. Hey, everybody. My name is Harrison Wheeler, and welcome to the next episode of Technically Speaking. My guest today is David Dylan Thomas, speaker, filmmaker, and author of Design for Cognitive Bias. Thanks for coming on the show, Dave.
1: Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, if you could just give us like a, a brief pitch.
1: Tell us a little bit about who Dave is. Sure. So I am a guy who is a cheerleader for inclusive design. I do that through my book, Design for Cognitive Bias, which talks all about different biases and how design and contact, uh, or, sorry, content interacts with those and how as designers or really anybody who makes anything, we can do a better job with that. Um, I'm also a filmmaker. I've been making movies ever since I was in high school. All kinds of movies, documentaries, action films, comedies. I'm all over the place with that. Wanting to get back to that soon, now that the book kind of gives me some breathing room. And uh, yeah, I just, and I love movies too. So big movie watching guy, big into social justice, like you name it. But these days, I basically, I go around getting people excited about and giving them tools for inclusive design. That's like literally my job now. I have a business I just started in March called David Dylan Thomas LLC. So really easy to remember the name. And yeah, I give uh, workshops, uh, speaking gigs, all that stuff.
0: So I'd love for you to maybe kind of take us through how you got into design. I don't know if filmmaking influenced that, but I would love to sort of understand like what that evolution of yours has looked like over time. Sure. Yeah.
1: And I think the filmmaking does matter. So I've been making movies like a since high school, and that's just part of the storytelling vibe with me, right? I think that's where the content part of my content strategy comes from. But then around uh, 2000, I started getting involved in distance education, and that's really when I fell in love with the web and how it could bring people together from all over the world. And that's really my first taste of thinking about content digitally, thinking about user experience, you know, we did some experiments with how it basically was a whole bunch of different students from all over the world trading essays, and how to sort of improve that experience for them. And it wasn't really until I moved to Philadelphia, that was back in Baltimore, I moved to Philadelphia in 2004, my wife got a job at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, so we moved up here. And uh, that's when I started getting into um, a bunch of different jobs that didn't have the name content strategist, but we're basically doing content strategy. So, I was working at a uh, trade publication company that had like these four or five print magazines, and I was in charge of the websites for all those magazines. So, it was a lot of decisions about which articles are going to be in print, which ones aren't. You know, which ones are, you know how, how much from the magazine is going to end up on the web? How do we use forums? How do we use video? So, really, you know, in the deep end of um, how to really think. Deeply and strategically about digital content. And, you know, again, still learning about UX at that time. So, a few jobs like those. And then eventually, I get a job at uh, EPAM, which is a, you know, uh, digital design uh, firm. And that's the first time I actually had the words content strategist on my business card. And I was working with UX, visual design, web developers, really in the element. That's really where I learned my craft. That's really where I, you know, learned the client facing side of the business. From there, moved on to Think Company, um, did a lot of similar work there. uh, And again, evolved even more. I was leading up my own content strategy division then. And then just like I said, just this year, moved on from there to full-time solo gig.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned really kind of getting into the cognitive bias part. There's so many different areas and, and focuses of concentration when we start to think about design and it's actually ever expanding. So what really kind of drove you to really dig into the cognitive bias side of things? Like what was that moment?
1: Sure. So I think it's a series of moments accumulating. So my mother went to uh, UCLA. She studied. She was a major in psychology. So I kind of inherited a lot of that from her, like that fascination with the brain. My wife, like I said, she's a pediatric neuropsychologist, and so she kind of introduced me to the works of folks like Oliver Sacks, who did all this amazing work in understanding just how complex and wonderful and terrible our brains are. (laughs) And then really what locked it into me for studying cognitive bias specifically was this talk that uh, Iris Bonnet gave at South by Southwest a few years back. It's called Gender Equality by Design, which I highly recommend you check out. It's on YouTube. And one of the concepts she gets into is this notion that a lot of racial bias and gender bias sometimes just comes back to pattern recognition. And it's this idea that You know, if you're hiring like a web developer, like when I say those words web developer, the image that might pop into your head might be a skinny white dude. And it's not because you think that men are better programmers than women or anything like that. It's just the pattern that you may have seen throughout your life, whether it's in movies or television or maybe even offices you've worked in. It just makes it seem like that's the pattern. And if you see a name at the top of a resume that doesn't quite fit that pattern, all of a sudden you're giving that resume the side eye. You may not even know why. So I decided, like, if pattern recognition can be that powerful, I need to learn everything I can about cognitive bias. And I literally opened up the Rational Wiki page of cognitive biases. It lists out, like, 150 biases. And I just took one a day, because I was like, I'm not going to get through all this in a day. So I just took one a day, would read up on it. The next day, I'd read up on the next one. It became just a daily habit. And it turned me into the guy who wouldn't shut up about cognitive bias. And so I had this one good friend, Emily, who, you know, at the time, actually worked for TED. And she was saying you really should just do a podcast, right? Or when are you going to do the podcast? Every time I meet her, it's like, "What are you doing the podcast? I'm like, all right, fine. Like when someone who works at TED says you should do a podcast, it's like, okay, I'm going to trust you. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny too, because now she actually works in the podcast world, So she knew what she was talking about. But anyway, so yeah, I started doing the podcast and that's really, if you want to understand something deeply, do a podcast about it. Because when you have to explain it to other people, it forces you to really understand it as
0: best you can. So, so yeah, that was that journey. Right. So that's a great segue into the next question, because I want to level set here with the listeners. What is Dave's interpretation of cognitive bias? Like what is like a kind of high level summary? So
1: yeah, a cognitive bias is just a fancy scientific word for when a shortcut your brain makes leads you to error. So we have to make something like a trillion decisions every single day. Like even right now, I'm deciding what to do with my hands, how fast to talk, where to look. And if I think carefully about every single one of those decisions, I am never gonna get anything done. So it's a good thing that most of our lives are on autopilot, something like 95% of decisions are made below the threshold of conscious thought like you don't even realize you've made them. Sometimes though that autopilot gets it wrong and those errors are called cognitive biases. So there's one called illusion of control where if you are playing a game where you have to roll a die, you need a really high number, you tend to roll the die really hard. But if you need a lower number, you tend to roll it gently. And Everybody knows that it doesn't matter how hard you roll the die, right? But in situations where we don't have control, we like to feel like we have control. So we embody that by how we roll the die. So that's an error. Like it's just, it's a shortcut. It's a mental shortcut to do it that way. And it happens to be wrong. And so we call it a cognitive bias.
0: So by definition, most bias is, is fairly negative, right? I feel like when you think of the word of a shortcut, that may not necessarily be a bad thing because it gets you there quicker.
1: Yeah. Uh, And and sometimes where it gets you isn't where you want to (laughs) go or where it gets you is hurtful to someone else. Like those are the ones we have to worry about. So confirmation bias is another shortcut your mind takes, but it can lead to all sorts of harm. I mean, I think a lot about the Capitol riots, insurrection on 1-6, and that was a lot of people who were convinced that Trump won the election. And I I guarantee you, they are not going to change their minds for a very long time. Decades from now, there will be people who are still convinced Trump won the election. And that is a bias that is still leading to lots of harm. So yeah, to me, I don't worry about so much whether it's an error. I really, what my work ends up focusing on is, okay, when are these errors causing actual harm and how do we avoid that?
0: Right. So it's really kind of the outward effect of what that does. Like, if you don't mind like sharing, like how has that personally like shown up for you and some of your experiences? Oh, yeah, I have a lot of, so I
1: think one bias I personally suffer from a lot is called zero risk bias, and it's a bias where basically there's an experiment where I say, okay, you're going to participate in an experiment, and there's a 50% chance you're going to get a mild electric shock, but if you pay me $10, I'll reduce that to a 1% chance, but if you pay me $100, I'll reduce it even further to like 0.1%, and people will pay the $100, because we are that obsessed with like having one less thing to think about, we want zero risk. And so, where this can become harmful is, say in the 50s, you had this drive to get all carcinogens out of food, but to the point where like there had to be zero percent chance that any food had any carcinogen. And companies did this, but the problem was, in changing the chemicals in their food to get you to zero percent carcinogens, they increased the risk of heart disease. So the foods actually became more dangerous in an effort to get to zero risk. And I find that I get that way. When I think about cancel culture, for example, even before the most recent bout accusations against Joss Whedon, like months or years before that, really, there was some other stuff going on with him, like cheating on his wife and all this other stuff that didn't make him look like the world's best feminist. And I began, my reaction was to be like, okay, I have to either defend him which means I'm sort of defending an anti-feminist, or I have to literally burn every single Joss Whedon, are you know, like my fire my Firefly DVDs. I must burn them. I must destroy them. I must disavow them completely. Right? Again, zero. It had to be either either 100 in favor of him, or totally zero risk of ever being affiliated with him. Like I couldn't wrap my head around liking problematic work or having a complex relationship with pop culture that I found engaging. And you know, my wife is totally like, she's she's a huge Joss Whedon fan, and she is also a huge feminist, and she is able to do the mental math to be like, okay, we can talk about this, and this can be problematic, and this can be enjoyable all at the same time. Whereas I'm like, oh no, 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 we have to be on one side or the other. And so that's my default, is to go that completely, fractured way, but that binary thinking will kill you. That's, it's not helpful. It's not helping feminists for me to be that binary, you know? (laughs) So that, but that one I find like personally is one I struggle with a lot.
0: So kind of like that gray area piece, is that, a way of kind of mitigating like how do we better approach these different types of bias? Is it opening up the conversation? Like are there certain frameworks, and methodologies? Just would love to know a little bit more about that because I think you could probably say the same thing too around January 6th. You have some folks that think the country is totally heading to the shitter and then on the other side it's totally different but there's no really kind of middle ground conversation or maybe the middle is further one way than the other but I I think I kind of had a, a question that I communicated to you maybe beforehand, is like, what happens if we go in one direction versus another? Do we not want to do that? I think what we want to do,
1: because it is easier than you think to be extremist in an unhealthy way, no matter what your affiliation. I personally gravitate towards the liberal side of the equation, and if I had to over-index in one way or another, I feel like the least harmful way is a more liberal direction. But what I think is actually more helpful is to frame it in terms of values, right? And this is something I get from therapy. It's funny, I went into therapy, I was diagnosed with depression 2019. And so in 2019 is when I started going on antidepressant medication and I started getting therapy. And it's funny because it ended up being preparation for 2020. Because <laughs> if I had to face 2020 without antidepressants, and without therapy, I think it would have been a very different story. <laughs> so it was sort of like, it was good timing in a weird way. But one of the things that you learn in therapy for my for the things I was dealing with in therapy was I had spent a lot of my life outsourcing myself value and letting other people's opinions drive my opinion of am I a good person? And I was desperate to answer that question. Am I a good person? And quick to condemn myself if there was ever any evidence otherwise. Oh, I must be a terrible person. That framework wasn't helpful. And in therapy, we started to work on this framework that was more about saying, look, let's throw out good person, bad person. Let's just talk about what are your values. And once we understand what your values are, let's now frame things in terms of proximity to those values. That decision you made, is it closer to your values? Is it further away? the kinds of behavior you're exhibiting today, is that closer to where your values than you were yesterday or is it further away? That conversation is much healthier because A, it gives us a frame of reference that maybe we can agree with someone else on. It's like maybe two or three of us have the same value. We can frame the conversation in terms of, well, we all agree this is good. Are we getting closer or further away? And the argument becomes more, how do we get closer or further? And are we closer or further? Not you're a racist, you're an anti-racist, You're evil, you're good. Like, those conversations tend to shut us down. (laughs) Even if they're valid, in fact, you are a racist, right? (laughs) That even if they are dealing with describing actual behavior, what they aren't doing is getting us closer to our values. So I think rather than worry about, are we going in a direction that we have categorized as liberal or we have categorized as conservative, we talk about, are we getting closer to this value? If we believe that it is important for people to be safe. We can talk about that. And we can argue day and night about whether guns make us safer or not, or the way we enforce the law makes us safer or not, or who it makes safer or not safer, right? But if we're starting from a place of, well, just level set again, we're all talking about whether how we get safer. We think everyone should be safer, great. Let's make sure that's what we're focused on. I think that ends up being a more useful and more, honestly, inclusive discussion than just are we getting more conservative, are we getting more liberal? Which again, is a valid discussion, and I think you can sort of make very good arguments one direction or other, but if you actually want people to be more safe, arguing about are we more conservative or are we more liberal probably won't get you there.
0: Exactly, yeah, so it, it's more or less kind of what I'm taking out is a discussion away from ideals, more to a human-centered approach, right? Because I think one of the pieces that I kind of pull out of this too is when you think about value, driven, there's also sort of a case of understanding too their norms, and norms change over time. And I think it also opens up potentially to the theme of a gray area, this willingness to also pivot and learn, because you always need to kind of hear sort of like what sort of people are saying, or at least how it's affecting them to really get a grasp of what that means.
1: Yeah, and I think what that comes back to is like fixed versus growth mindset. So I think that if you can't agree to that, <laughs> whether you want to approach things from a fixed versus growth mindset, like you aren't going to get very far. So if you want to think of the country in terms of like, this is what America is, and it, and it is a fixed thing, and it will always be that way, you're going to have a very difficult time having that conversation, especially when you're trying to have that conversation with a country as diverse as America. Whereas if you want to approach it more from a, well, we're a living being like America is a living organism that is constantly growing constantly evolving it maintains a certain set of values but how it expresses those values and who gets to play <laughs> and be included in those values is constantly growing and evolving i think you're you're in a better shape like i think a lot about how companies get it wrong when they think about diversity and inclusion and a lot of times you see people say okay well we don't have enough black people at the company so we're going to hire some black people and they're shocked when those hires don't last. And what they're not accounting for is the idea that they hire this person and then they bring them into a culture and they're like, okay, we expect you to become like us. And they ask that because they assume they're hiring for culture fit, in air quotes. And the problem with culture fit, even if you have a nice culture, is that it produces a monoculture because you're only ever hiring people who are like you. Or if you hire someone not like you, you're trying to make them be like you. And no one really wants that. Whereas if you hire for culture growth, you're making a different assumption about your company. You're assuming it's a growth mindset. It's the idea that, well, we are not going to be the same company a year from now that we are today. And that's a good thing. And I don't just mean growth in terms of size. That's sort of like the capitalist interpretation of growth. I mean, growth in terms of maturity, like we are going to evolve and become better and more wise over time. And if that's what you're hiring for, well, then when you bring in that person who is not, you're, A, you're going to specifically seek out people who are not like you because you're not going to evolve if you keep hiring the people who are like you. And then when you hire them, you are going to hire them with the expectation that you will not change them, they will change you. And that gives them the freedom to be themselves in a way that's going to be interdependent with the company and not get swallowed up by the company. I mean, I I always think of the Avengers. It's sort of like, if I have Iron Man, I don't want to then hire another Iron Man. I want uh, Scarlet Witch or I want Black Panther. I want some other power set I don't just want 12 Ironmen. That's not the Avengers. That's just an Iron Army. I want it to grow and change over time. So I feel like that's a mindset that I think, I think is more profitable, both like spiritually and financially. Right? Like it's better for society if we think in terms of growth, which gives us that flexibility about thinking versus this rigid kind of like, well, this is you know a white Christian country and it will always be that way. You know, that's not. I don't think that's going to work out.
0: Yeah, and I'd say to that, too, it it also is an expectation that these institutions need to have that willingness to change and pivot as well, right? Yeah, I
1: mean, it's the assumption, I still remember in, in high school, they talk about the, the loose and, like, I forget it's loose and rigid or something like that, but the different interpretations of the Constitution, for example. And it's sort of a version of that. I mean, even the Constitution, it's kind of fascinating, because the Constitution is very difficult to change and very rigid in a lot of ways, But it it is designed to be amended. It is designed that it is possible to change it. We literally 180'd it with alcohol. There was a point at which it was in the damn Constitution, you cannot drink, and then we 180'd with a whole other amount. So we can, like, it is a remarkably flexible Constitution. And that's to say nothing of what happens during Reconstruction with the Constitution that really fundamentally altered, like, how we think about democracy in this country. And spent like the rest of, you know, up until now trying to undo it. But, you know, that's another conversation. But yeah, I think that my interpretation of the Constitution, for example, is that it was designed to accommodate a growth mindset rather than just sort of be, okay, this is etched in stone because we can predict the future perfectly and nothing will ever change that will require us to rethink it.
0: Yeah, I think this may have been like the first conversation where I've seen or heard the constitution being framed in a growth mindset. So it's super fascinating, like you said. The future of work is here at Automatic. The people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Join a team of diverse global perspectives. Create the work environment and schedule that empowers you to perform at your very best. At Automatic, what matters is the work you produce, not how many hours you put in. Work from anywhere you choose. There are automatications working right now in 79 countries around the globe. The intellectual and cultural diversity that results is critical to the company's success. Automatic believes in constant learning and offers mentorship and personal coaching to support your growth. As a small company with a huge footprint, Automatic offers you the chance to have an impact and make a difference. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit Automatic.com to check the latest job listings. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C ccom So we've gone very in-depth of what can go wrong. I'm going to ask you two questions. Is there a world where we don't have bias?
1: No. I mean, that would be a world where you struggled to make even the simplest decision. Even AIs aren't sophisticated enough to work without shortcuts and algorithms. Like, that's all an algorithm is. It's a shortcut for a computer, a repeatable process, a heuristic. I mean, like, we have... Kind of a limited resource when it comes to making decisions carefully. There's something called decision fatigue where the harder a decision is to make or the more decisions to make, each decision takes energy, like actual physical energy. People actually get tired after they've made a lot of decisions. And so you really only have a limited uh, resource when it comes to like which how many decisions, how many really thoughtful decisions you can make in a day. And there are things you can do to extend that. They've shown that meditation is great at kind of flexing that muscle. So after you've done some meditation for a while and you flex that, maybe you go from being able to make 10 thoughtful decisions a day to like 11 or 12, you can kind of flex that muscle. But at the end of the day, it's a limited resource and everything else is going to kind of have to rely on shortcuts and those that 95% that's making those decisions. So I think that gives us a responsibility to be careful about how we spend those 10 decisions, spend them on like being kind and thinking about what you're voting for and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't think a world without bias... I don't think you'd want to live in a world without bias. I don't even know what that would even mean necessarily.
0: Like, it's, it's just... It, it, it's, would mean, it's, it would probably mean someone else is making the decisions for you, right? Kind of. I mean, that's, yeah. Like, I, I think the closest I can...
1: This is going to be a weird analogy, but like season five of Fringe is all about this sort of invader future race that comes in and they literally think like they have basically computer brains, but it's very cold and analytical. I think a world without bias is what we think AI is like, even though it's totally not what AI is like. We think AI is like, oh, they're the perfectly rational spot character. We think like Vulcans. I think that's what we think of a world without bias, but that's just not a thing.
0: So what does, like, what does success look like? Is it just having a thoughtful process and approach and being inclusive? Yeah, I think it's interdependence. I think it's saying, look,
1: I cannot see everything. I have shortcuts and I'm working on the shortcuts. I'm not excused from that. But while I work on those shortcuts or improving some of those harmful shortcuts, I need you because you have different shortcuts and you're going to see things I can't see and I'm going to see things you can't see. So it's the blind man and the elephant. Like you can tell the part that's the, Feet, I can tell the part that's the trunk. this so the guy can tell the part, you know. We can put a picture together from the pieces that we have, from the biases that we have. And if we put them together in the right way, we can see the bigger picture. We each have a piece of the puzzle, but if we don't get together and communicate and work together, we're not going to ever see the bigger picture. Or we're going to see the wrong picture. We're going to look at our piece of the puzzle and think it's the whole puzzle. That's usually what we do. But there's an opportunity there to come together and be like, okay, here's how we can actually see the bigger picture. And like I'm a big fan of thinking about interdependent systems and interdependent approaches as opposed to total dependence or total independence. It's more like, hey, how do we actually integrate what we're doing and coordinate? Because it's both a limitation and a help that we have these biases. It, It actually can be very helpful, but we need to frame it the right way and bring it together in a way that
0: respects the fact that this is how our brains work. So I want to move off of this topic, but I would love if you could maybe give brief plug on your book, what it covers, and where folks can find it.
1: Sure. So the book is called Design for Cognitive Bias. I mean, you can find it at A Book Apart. Honestly, if you just go to DavidDillonThomas.com, you can buy the book there. You can hire me to speak there. You can just say hello there. It's like all the Dave stuff is at DavidDellinThomas.com.
0: Awesome. So About DavidDillonThomas.com and you starting your business, sort of what kind of moved you in that direction? So it's interesting.
1: I mean, for the longest time I avoided it like the plague. I was just like, (laughs) I do not want to have to deal with my own health insurance. I do not like I thought about all the headaches. Because I knew freelancers and I knew they were hustling all the time. And I'm like, I cannot deal with that. Like I really enjoy going out and giving talks. I really enjoy running workshops. And to a certain degree, that was a part of my day job. So as someone representing content strategy, I would go out and I would teach classes on it, or I would give talks about it at conferences in, in a way that would help bring business back to wherever I was working. So there was a degree to which it was a part of my job. And there was a degree to which I was still doing just, you know, day-to-day client work and I still enjoyed that. But as I evolved, I began to grow more and more into that kind of performer role of like, I go up on stage and I get people excited about a thing and then they go do the thing. And I got really good at it. Like I really enjoyed it and I got really good at it. And it came to a point where a couple things happen. One, my home life, like you know, thank God my wife has a job that is very stable and that she loves and that is lucrative enough so that I can take a chance like this and say, you know what, I want to see how I do if I just try to make this all that I do, going out and, and booking gigs. And then B, the book drops, and I can tell you the backstory on that if you like. But the the book drops and it kind of creates this platform for me to sort of sell myself as someone who knows what he's talking about, <laughs> you know, whether it's true or not. Like that's the the book, kind of like a, the book and the podcast also kind of go a long way to sort of establishing me as like the expert on bias in tech or an expert on bias in tech, like if this is the sort of thing you're interested in. And for better or worse, I mean, really for worse, honestly, 2020 became a year where people became very conscious of bias and the role that it was in the harm that it was causing.
0: In terms of like, you mentioned sort of the validation of your expertise. Was that something that was difficult for you to do before the podcast and the release? like Maybe kind of take me through like where Dave is in terms of your craft and your dedication before the, the book and the podcast to now.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of went through a pilot of becoming thought of as an expert in something with content strategy. So I was getting into content strategy around 2011, I attended the first meeting of the Philly Content Strategy Meetup. And nobody really knew what it was. And a lot of the people in the room were like, oh, so this is what I've been doing for the past 10 years. A lot of ex-journalists, a lot of folks who have been organizing content in one way or another. And the the field itself was, even then, still very young. And I just sort of like doubled down on it. Like I attribute my fortune to a combination of luck and persistence. I try to be very clear on that because I don't like... I don't like the myth of the self-made man. I want people to understand, like Americans are very bad at talking about the role of black. but like I was fortunate enough to have a mother who emphasized education. I was fortunate enough to be, you know, privileged enough that she could could even go into debt in the first place (laughs) to get the money to like, you know, give me this education and the people that I've met in my life, right? Very fortunate to like have had all those benefits. But then there's also persistence. The fact that I was just sort of like, you know what, I'm just going to keep making episodes of this podcast. Like I did a hundred episodes of that thing. I'm gonna keep like volunteering and eventually organizing the fully content strategy meetup. And over time, much to my surprise, I became known as, oh, you do content strategy, you gotta meet Dave. Or specifically, you do content strategy in Philly, oh, you gotta meet Dave. And, you know, it was legit. Like I did in fact know a lot about content strategy. I'd been practicing it for a while by then. I've been learning about it a lot by then. And I'd met a lot of great people who did it by then. I'm gonna learn from them. So that persistence of just constantly doing it. Like learning by doing. That sort of, if you did in fact meet with me, I could in fact yes tell you a lot about content strategy. So that was sort of like me like learning what does it feel like to actually a get good at something, but then also be known for being good at something. And then with cognitive bias and design, that was a little bit of a harder journey because cognitive bias is like content strategy is like kind of new. You can kind of it is whatever you say it is. (laughs) It had I mean even to this day it's kind of still in that area. But cognitive bias, that's a thing. People have been studying for like 100 years. Like we, you know, it's a thing. And so I had a lot more imposter syndrome getting that expertise. But again, it was really me just, I was never trying, like that benefited from it not being a job. That benefited from it being like a hobby and an interest. But that again, I doubled down on, and like I said, literally every single day, like making a habit of it and learning a lot. And I think the tipping point to where I felt like, okay, saying, yes, I am an expert you know, And, and even that, I, I use that term a bit willy-nilly just because true knowledge, you're never really stopped learning. Like the true expert knows how little they know. So with that caveat, but no, to the point where it's like, okay, put me in a random room, odds are I know more about cognitive bias than most of the other people in the room. Like if you wanted to find it that way. But I think the real tipping point for me was I went to um, a social science foo camp, which was just a room full of people who had in fact gone to school to study this stuff. And we're all giving each other talks and having conversations. And I'm like, this is gonna when they find me out that like I'm just some charlatan putting on the robes of social science and like coming up short. And I'm talking to them about like the ideas. I hadn't written the book yet, but I was doing the podcast. And I'm talking about the ideas that I've been thinking about and the stuff I've been working on. And they're like nodding their heads and be like, yeah, and I am and they're like, Yeah, I actually found some similar results with this other stuff I'm doing with at this university. I'm like, What? it's real. (laughs) Like you're not, you're not laughing me out of the room. Like, and I would go through my decks, which were like citing actual studies and like, and I'm again, waiting for like, oh yeah, that study, that's bullshit. (laughs) I'm waiting for like them to like be like, oh yeah, we, we debunked that 20 years ago. What are you talking about? But it's like, nope, And it was like, okay, so maybe I actually do know what I'm talking about. Even like I felt confident talking about UX design and content strategy with the top minds in that field. I did not feel comfortable talking about like Daniel Kahneman, who was like the father of cognitive bias. you thinking like he was at this conference and he sat down at a table and we chatted for a minute and I was like fanboying out. But it's sort of like, okay, I feel like I can hold my own here. And the other big moment like this was when I wrote the book. I wrote for a book apart, who are amazing partners, highly recommend working with them if you ever get the chance. But A Book Apart books usually go through what's called a technical review because most of the books are sort of design or web development oriented. So they'll have a tech review where you go through and sort of like make sure the code checks out. For my book, which was mostly psychology research, we brought in Erica Franz, PhD, who's a social scientist to come in and review the book. And that one, I was like two, three weeks. So I'm just like sweating. I'm like, oh my God, it's going to come back and there's going to be all these notes. Oh my God, it's on. And then it comes back. And she's like, okay, I might rephrase this here. And I might clarify, it's actually called this there. And yeah, it was a fun read. And like, that's it. (laughs) There's like two, three notes, uh, which I implemented. And it was like, but like what I'm saying makes sense. (laughs) It's like, okay. So, but yeah, but it's, it's a, I think, especially when you're entering someone else's playground, there is definitely like a hill of like, okay. And I think everyone's going to have their own level of until this person says it's true. You know, I don't think I really know what I'm talking about, but definitely a hump I had to get through. And now I feel pretty comfortable talking about and sort of saying, yeah, I can talk to you about this. Like when I, for example, when I talk about my services, I'm like, I am not a DEI expert. I cannot come into your company and tell you how to create an inclusive culture that's going to welcome and be sensitive to and create safe spaces and all that. Like, that's no, I I can recommend some. I know some fantastic DEI experts and I'd love to introduce you to them. But I can tell you how to build your products more inclusively with an awareness of bias. Like, that is my little niche that I feel very comfortable working in. And even that, I'm still learning. Every time, that's part, honestly, what makes this work great is like, almost every time I give a talk, I hear from someone who's like, oh, have you heard about this group and the work they're doing? I'm like, I have not. That's amazing. Tell me more. Like, I can't keep up. I have like a little inbox full of articles I have yet to read about the cool stuff people are doing in this area. So I am an expert on bias in tech, but like in that I've read a lot and there's so much more I haven't read yet.
0: Well, one of the things I'm also kind of taking away from this and what I really love is you could go down this very academic cognitive bias route. And I think that's probably where a lot of that feeling of validation and imposter syndrome tends to happen. But I think when you add that lens and that intersectionality with design and tech, you're leveraging really an experience that maybe the folks over here don't have, and you're providing another perspective.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the magic sauce is where, right? Because the professional, like I have been in the trenches doing experience design with clients for years and years and years, right? And I can tell you what it's like, and I I can talk to you in a language that you understand. And I'm just taking my hobby, so to speak, and applying that lens to it to say, okay, you know how when clients do this, okay, what that probably is is loss aversion, and you should be thinking about that. Or you can say, you saw when that company did that, and it seemed really like boneheaded, okay, they were probably suffering from this bias, Or why did that user do that weird thing there? Okay, it's probably this bias, right? I agree, that intersection is unique enough where I can kind of like position myself in a place I don't think a lot of people are necessarily playing. Like I think people are playing with bits and pieces of it, but I don't think there are a ton of people right now who are specifically looking at design from the perspective of cognitive bias. Now, there are more people doing it, which I'm very happy about, I think this is a sorely needed category. Um, I think that behavioral scientists should be working a lot more with designers, and vice versa. That should be, I think, a. Natalie and Condé talks a lot about this, about like who should be on a on a kind of tech team, and it includes not just technologists, but like social scientists and historians and ethicists. Like, I feel like that should be standard operating procedure. Like right now, someone like me is unique ish, but there should be like a hundred of me. Like there should be a thousand of me. Like this should this should be like an understood. Like discipline, because I think you know. For example, I have a friend in Sweden, and he was telling me like Swedish education in UX is usually more like take a couple years to learn social science, then decide are you going to be an academic and do research, or are you going to do applied social science and do UX. So they don't think of UX as the starting point; they think of it as a potential endpoint of an understanding of human behavior, which I think is a much more sensible way to go about it. Especially when you think that most of the things we're creating UX for are about human behavior, right?
0: So I, I want to kind of, in sort of this segment, where do people start, right? And I think it's important to know, did you take any classes for, as a start or was it just something that you kind of researched on your own, you found, you know, the access to the information online pretty easy?
1: I read a bunch of Wikipedia articles, I read a bunch of science articles and a bunch of websites. Like, literally, I would Google fundamental attribution error. Like, you want to do what I did? Total formula right here. Go to the rational, just Google rational wiki cognitive bias, And you'll see a page that is a list of cognitive biases. Take the first one, Google it, and read the first three or four entries you find. Wash once repeat for the next like 150 days. Like that is literally what I did. And if you look, it is so transparent. If you actually look at the cognitive bias podcast, the episodes, almost two a one, they follow right down the page of the rational and even the seasons, because that page is split up into different types of biases. The seasons pretty much match. So season one is pretty much that first chunk. Season two is all about probability. That's that chunk. Season three is all social uh, biases. There's that chunk. And aside from a handful of interviews I did, that is literally the episode guide for the Cognitive Bias podcast. And again, <laughs> took the bias, Googled it, read some entries on it, took away some notes from that, and then that's it. Like, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's social science. But yeah, like, and that's actually honestly part of the reason I had a little bit of imposter syndrome there, because I'm like, these people paid a lot of money to go to school <laughs> to learn about this stuff. Is there any way in which I am measuring up or have anything relevant to say here? But I mean, like, that's what I did. Now, could I have gotten deeper knowledge by going to grad school? Maybe? I would have certainly been deeper in debt. But yeah, for like, what I learned, that is literally how I learned it. <laughs> it's just, Google and and Google again.
0: <laughs> and now the listeners have the syllabus. So you've got the Google search, you've got the podcast, you've got the book, you've got the talks.
1: Uh, the thing I will note that I think is important to back, back this up is I wasn't good at this first, but I got good later at citing my sources. So that is one thing that's important is that at least a little bit, and we can argue about whether or not social science has enough rigor to begin with. That's a whole other replication crisis problem. But in terms of being able to say, okay, I am reporting that this is a bias. Why am I saying that this is a bias? Who said it was a bias? What? Why did they say it was a bias? Right. I should be able to at least point to a study here or a study there. And and writing the book forced me to get good at that. Like If you read the book, it's like footnote, footnote, or like blink, really. But footnote, 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 so many things I had to cite. And that, it's an, an adventure in itself to sort of go back and be like, oh, wait a minute, I had that wrong. When I actually read the study now, it says something different. Okay, I need to correct that, you know? So I don't want to pretend that Googling something makes you an expert. I will say that Googling something opens a lot of doors that you can then try to apply rigor to. And that was the process for me of that rigor was sort of saying, okay, yeah, but is there actually a study that says this? Or did some dude just say it once?
0: And it got repeated. (laughs) So what's next for you then? So you got the book, you're doing some speaker events. Is that sort of the part for the course for now? Is there a movie? Like, is there, you know, let us know sort of what's next.
1: So yeah, I am working on a screenplay. My next big thing is going to be a screenplay. And I'm going to hopefully try to finish that by the end of the year. I won't go into too much detail, but it's a sort of like social justice horror movie. But that that is kind of the next big thing I want to work on. But for the foreseeable future, thank God, I am busy enough with talks and workshops that I don't have time to write it yet. (laughs) So, you know, I'm going to keep plugging away at that. But that long term, the next thing I want to do is, is a movie.
0: Awesome. Well, we look forward to hearing it. And, and where can we kind of follow you? What are the different channels? Sure. That we can so get in touch.
1: Yeah, if you go again to uh, DavidDillonThomas.com, at the bottom of that page, you've got my Twitter and my LinkedIn. I am at movie underscore pundit is my Twitter handle. And there's also a link on that page to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about all the different... Honestly, it's like I'm going to be at the Ha Ha Club on Thursday. It's very much like stand-up comedy, <laughs> but, it, but like it lists all the different things I'm working on and the places I'm going to be.
0: Sure. Is there anything that you want to leave with the listeners before the end of the show? Support black
1: business. I say that every time. Anytime anyone asks me a question like that, I'm like, okay, this is my chance. Support black business. I'm, I'm a big believer believer in economic empowerment. I'm a big believer in black I mean I am a black owned business. <laughs> so yeah. it's a little selfish but still no, I'm a big believer in that and if you go to rebuildblackbusiness.com there are literally 14,000 businesses listed there that you could be helping out. So if you want to be an ally, a great way is to give us money.
0: Well, thanks Dave. I appreciate you being on the show. This was a very enlightening, high energy conversation and I know there's a ton of value that folks will get out of it. Can't thank you enough for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time.